If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History. to mind when you think of 1970s Britain. For many, its memory might be fairly bleak, filled with strikes and economic turbulence. But does the decade really deserve such a reputation? From the uniting power of television to his grandfather's safari suits, Alwyn Turner takes Lauren Good on a journey through this decade of change. 1970s Britain seems to have gone down in popular recollection as a pretty bleak decade. Let's contextualise this at the beginning of this interview with a question on Twitter from Malcontent Kiwi who says, I grew up in New Zealand watching news reports about the UK. It actually looked pretty miserable. Strikes, unemployment, protests and generally bleak. Was it better than it looked from the other side of the world? It was pretty bleak at times. And into that, I think one could also add the low-level civil war in Northern Ireland, I mean, which was really serious in the 1970s. Nearly 500 people killed in 1972 alone. And there was certainly a big sense of everything seemed to be going wrong. In 1974, the head of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industries, said that the crisis was almost as serious as the outbreak of war. People did feel that we were reaching a critical point in British history. But was it quite that bleak? Probably not really, no. In retrospect, I mentioned unemployment. By modern standards, unemployment was remarkably low. Crime levels were much lower than they are now. Wealth inequality was at its absolute record low. The gap between rich and poor has never been narrower. So there is a bigger picture behind the, the moments of absolute crisis, which certainly turned up in 1972, 1974, 1979. There were these critical moments where it seemed as if the country might be falling apart. But broadly, most people, for most of everyday life, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as it sometimes looks. And there was a sense of a shared experience in this. When things were bad, when there were strikes that took out the electricity supply, for example... Everybody was affected. So there was a sense of coming together in times of adversity, and that's good. There was also a shared culture in a way that I don't think exists anymore. This is a time when you've only got three television channels. For most of the country, you've only got two and a half. There's quite a lot of the country can't even get BBC Two at this point. So everybody's watching the same TV shows, for example. And some of that has also lasted, I think, in the popular memory. Things like Morecambe and Wise, The Good Life, Forty Towers the glory years of Doctor Who and Coronation Street, you know, that was part of the the texture of the time as well. And because I was young at the time, I still think it's the best period ever for popular music. You know, you had David Bowie and Slade and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Kate Bush. I mean, extraordinary artists that were appearing at the same time. So it's there was a bleakness to it. There were times when it felt as if we were really reaching a moment of absolute crisis in the nation's history. But broadly, everyday life, nowhere near as bad as it's sometimes painted. 
And in regards to the political atmosphere, there's quite a bit of change in the government in this decade. What parties were elected throughout the 1970s? Yeah, we've got used to long periods of a single party in power ever since then. But but this was still at a time when there was a reasonable kind of turnover. You get one government and next election you get another. So 1970, the Labour government is replaced by a Conservative government. 1974, the Labour Party is back in. 1979, the Conservatives are back in. So there's a kind of swing between the two, which we haven't experienced since we've had these very long periods of a single party in power. So yeah, there is a turnover of politicians and a general feeling that none of them are working somehow. (laughs) None of them have the answers to the problems that the country's facing. We had questions asking, why was there so much industrial action in this decade? It's something that had been growing since the mid-1960s. Part of it is there's a growth in union membership. It's, it's a steady rise of people who are members of unions. Reaches a peak in 1979 where it's just about 50% of the workforce is unionised. So some of it was there were more people involved in unions and therefore strikes were going to be wider. Some of it is because behind that wave of industrial action, there was a, a long-standing problem of inflation. And inflation inevitably means that people are fighting over the money that is available. And the workforce was not inclined to take the hit on inflation. And so people were striking in order to maintain living standards that had already been achieved. And then there was just a growing sense of militancy that if the country wasn't working properly, then why should we be the ones to suffer? But it did grow. It did become a major issue. It had been something that Even the Labour Party in the 1960s had tried to address by changing the law. At this stage, it was perfectly legal for workers to go on strike as a secondary issue within a dispute. So one firm has a strike and the workers from another firm were perfectly legally entitled to join that strike, even though it wasn't their dispute. Secondary strikes, sympathy strikes, these were legal And the Labour government of the 1960s had tried to address that, had failed. The Conservative government of the early 1970s tried to address this, also failed. And that was also part of the problem from a government perspective, was that it was seen that unions had too much legal immunity. So the actions were much more widespread than they have been since. Because eventually in the 1980s, the government of Margaret Thatcher did address these issues and started to restrict the ability of unions to go on strike quite so easily. And the winter of 1978 to 1979 saw a wave of strikes, which is known as the winter of discontent. What was this? Yeah, this was when it got at its most acute. And again, it's about inflation, ultimately. Inflation hits a peak in 1975. It's over 25%. I mean, it's extraordinary levels of inflation. There was a great deal of talk at the time about how maybe we were heading towards Weimar Germany, that democracy could not survive levels of inflation like this. And the government response was to introduce pay restraint. So that the Labour government that was elected in 1974 started negotiating with the trade union movement and agreed that there would be a maximum pay rise for the coming year. And it was phrased either as an absolute figure of £6 per week or sometimes as percentage figures, 6% pay rise. And the idea that was that was the way to control inflation. 
And it worked to some extent. Inflation did come down from those extraordinarily high levels. But then in 1978, in the autumn of 1978, the government of James Callaghan, who was then the Labour Prime Minister, unilaterally announced that there would be a 5% pay policy for the coming year. And he hadn't negotiated this with the trade unions, and the trade unions therefore didn't feel bound by it. And strikes started in the late autumn of 1978 in private industry, people calling for 25 30% pay rises as opposed to the 5% official target. And then when it got really bad at the beginning of 1979, it spread into public services, and that's where it got really serious. Hospitals, schools were closing. There were strikes by refuse collectors, so rubbish was piling up in the streets. There were whole areas, public squares. I mean, famously, Leicester Square in London used essentially as a rubbish tip because nobody was collecting the rubbish. And none of this was new. We'd had strikes in all of these sectors previously, but they came together and it was simultaneous. And even the Labour government, which is broadly su- supportive of the trade union movement, there was Peter Shaw, who was a cabinet minister, talking about collective barbarity. And it was genuinely serious. For It was a short period of time. We're talking about maybe six weeks, eight weeks, whereas it's most intense. But the standard way of assessing the impact of, of industrial action is the number of days that are lost to strikes. And 1979 was the worst year for days lost to strike action since 1926, which was the year of the general strike. It really was at its absolute peak union activity. And the public turned against the unions as a, as a result. And it has two long-term impacts. One is it ensures the victory of Margaret Thatcher in the forthcoming general election in the spring of 1979. The even longer-term impact is that the concept of a pay policy is abandoned by both parties and we've never gone back to it. And so even in recent times when when inflation has been getting out of control again, it felt a few months ago, there was nobody who was arguing that the government should impose a pay policy that would affect all workers. That entire idea was destroyed by the winter of discontent. And along with industrial action, the 70s saw a lot of protests and demonstrations. Zani Sefer X on Twitter asks about the Battle of Lewisham. What was it and how did it result in change? One of the features of the growing sense of crisis was a rise in the far right. There's a party called the National Front was formed towards the end of the 1960s and by the mid-1970s seemed to be making some sort of inroads into politics. It never got councillors elected, let alone MPs, but there were times when it was coming third in elections beyond the Liberals, beating them into fourth place. And the Battle of Lewisham in 1977 was an attempt by the National Front to march through the streets of Lewisham and they were met by anti-fascist groups and by the far left. And there was a series of battles between the National Front and anti-fascist demonstrators, and then between anti-fascist demonstrators and the police. And it was violent, and lots of people were injured, and lots of people were arrested. And change? I don't know that it did result in any change, to be honest. The National Front were ultimately defeated, but mostly because of cultural pressure, not because of fighting in the streets. 
and because they did very, very badly when it came to the 1979 general election. Most of those who would have been tempted to vote for the National Front thought that in Margaret Thatcher, they had a strong right-wing leader, not far-right, but right-wing, who would stand against immigration, and therefore they didn't need to vote for a neo-Nazi party on the extreme right. The 70s also arrives after and amongst conflict. And James Dallin on Instagram asks, how did war trauma affect society? We've still got a memory of the war. I mean, culturally, it is still massively important. The Second World War looms very large over this period. Although by the end of the decade, I mean, the average age of the country in the 1970s is something like 34. So by the end of the decade, the majority of people do not have memories of the Second World War. But it is there. It is there as part of the warp and weft of society. It is in, in the culture. It is a constant reference back. And particularly because these are times when there are moments of crisis and there is an appeal by politicians to the blitz spirit that we must all come together as a community, as a nation. And those appeals are to a large extent successful. People do have that cultural memory of a nation under attack. And it is something that politicians can tap into in a way that just simply wouldn't work now. But we're not actually engaged in war. There are no conflicts apart from the troubles in Northern Ireland. British troops are not engaged in military activity. So it is more to do with the memory of what's been there in the past. And it does leave a very strong sense of the nation pulling together. We can do this. We have been through worse times. And also, I think, still the security of having occupied the Morong high ground, which is very important in post-war British mythology, is to say 1940, when the empire stood alone against the evil of the Nazis, there is something to be taken from that. There was a point to Britain. There was a meaning to what we were doing, and there was almost a sense of mission of keeping the concepts of freedom alive. That is integral to how Britain sees itself still at this period. And particularly because in the wider context, this is by the 1970s, virtually all of the empire has gone. And what is left is rapidly leaving. And so it needs something to hold the nation together to say that that was worth something. That despite the fact that the empire is now crumbled beneath us much more rapidly than anybody expected, there is still something to hang on to here, that it was in 1940, an undoubted force for good in the world. And it's clear that the 70s was a decade of great change, and this spanned across many aspects of society. Set Piece on Facebook asks, what was the Industrial Revolution in this decade? There was a growth in computers and in mechanisation within industry, but it didn't really touch most people. I mean, it's also, in technological terms, I guess the great achievement of the 1970s is the moon landings and the space programme, which is at its absolute peak in this period, in America, obviously. In terms of everyday life, I'm not sure that it was that enormous. This is a time, 1970, there's barely a third of the population has a telephone at home. It's not until 1975 that half the households in Britain have a telephone. It's not until 1977 that half the households in Britain have a colour television. And in both cases, with a telephone and with a colour television, you have one per household, even when you get it. So 
it's a communal experience of, you know, you all share the phone, you all share the same TV set. So this film, by modern terms, I mean, this is an extraordinarily primitive time. If you could afford it, there were new domestic appliances appearing. Deep freezes were very popular amongst those who could afford it. And the idea of buying large quantities of food, particularly at a time of rampant inflation, buying stuff in that will last you for several months, obviously has a deep appeal. But it's also a time when people still had twin tub washing machines. A front-loading automatic washing machine that is now absolutely standard was still seen as, as a novelty and a luxury at this stage. So the technology is very simple. I mean, the closest we had to computers was pocket calculators. And I don't know, it still feels, looking back at it, that this was before a great revolution. It's still things are trying to pick up from changes that have not really spread quite as widely as one might hope. And one change that did spread widely at the start of this decade was when Britain went decimal. How did this affect our currency? The old currency was, in retrospect, slightly complicated. You had 12 pennies to a, a shilling. You had 20 shillings to a pound. So a pound was therefore worth 240 pennies which does sound complicated. But of course, for most people, you've been growing up with this. It's so familiar that it didn't really register. That change onto a decimal system of 100 pennies to a pound seemed to a lot of people to be confusing. And because it's not a direct translation, 240 pennies shifting to 100 pennies, there's a kind of there's always going to be some anomalies within that, which were then rounded up, which adds to inflation. But we're attempting to harmonise with, well, with pretty much everybody, really, the, the, certainly the whole of Europe, which we are aspiring to join at this stage. We are applying to be members of the European communities. We're trying to get a, a currency that is reasonably logical and coherent. It affects the coinage as much as anything, and not always in a good way, I think. Some of the old coins are rather lovely. I was looking at a, the old threepenny piece, which is, yeah, three pennies. Seems an odd number, but it's a quarter of a shilling, so therefore it has a logic. And it was a beautiful little coin with 13 sides. I mean, I, there was a charm and an, an eccentricity about the British coinage that has been lost as we became more rational. And moving more towards social change, how was Britain's population affected by altering values in the 70s? Well, there had been this big raft of legislative changes in the late 1960s, and that gradually feeds out through the country and becomes part of everyday life. The idea that divorce has become much easier to achieve, that abortion has been legalised, those things do start to change society until... I mean, by the end of the decade, there are few families who don't know of the, the experience of these things. But it is still a slow process in, in many ways. It's, it's very difficult to be openly gay at this point. There are very, very few people in public life who are openly gay. Nobody in Parliament until Maureen Colherne in, in the late 1970s. Very few people even in entertainment. I mean, there are TV stars like Larry Grayson and Kenneth Williams and Frankie Howard, who are very obviously gay, but will insist in interviews that they are not. It is still seen as a difficult thing to admit because it will probably be a career. And, uh, and there is, it's a slow process. 
those changes inevitably. It takes a while for generations to move through and to, to accept things as being normal. But there is a certain, there is a shift. There is clearly something changing. And let's explore the topic of culture in this decade. The punk movement involved teens and young adults rebelling against political and social norms. And we have a question on Instagram that asks, was punk really as controversial as it's been said it was? Yes, it was very controversial. And some of it is going back to the previous points is because it flaunted British decline. It used images of the Union Jack torn up and then sewn together with safety pins. That kind of imagery of taunting Britain with its its decline in the world, that is undoubtedly hitting at cherished self-images of Britain. However, it was controversial, but it was very, very small. There were very few people who bought into punk. Very few people bought the records, frankly, with the exception of a handful of groups. I mean, four or five bands that actually managed to sell records. It was not a popular movement. It was it was expected by the record industry that punk was going to be the equivalent of the great beat boom of the 1960s, and it simply was not. It did not get anywhere near that level of penetration, let alone of exports to the rest of the world. The importance of punk... I think only becomes apparent in later decades. It does have a very, very long-term impact. It changes the nature of culture quite substantially because the few people who are really into it become quite important and people start to be inspired by the image of it. I think you can see it in in the growth of alternative comedy, which starts in 1979, the idea of this politicised comedy that is railing against the establishment, the light entertainment that is seen on television. That is inspired by punk, and it is much more popular than punk. Punk is is a form of agitation, but it never, ever gets anywhere near being a mass movement in any way whatsoever. And we've had a question that asks, what was fashion like in the 70s? It was terrific. The 1970s acquired a reputation of being a standard phrase, the decade the taste forgot. But that was in the 1980s, and the 1980s gave us rah-rah skirts and leg warmers, so they had nothing to boast about. 1970s fashion was terrific as long as you were young, in the same way that 1960s fashion was terrific for young people. The problem in the 1970s was that actually the middle-aged and even older started wearing fashions that would have suited a young person rather well and did not necessarily look so wonderful on an ageing body. I remember my grandfather, who was in his 80s, buying a safari suit with flared trousers, and it really was not a good look on an old man. On a young man, it was wonderful. When you saw David Bowie wearing massively pleated trousers, 32 pleats at his peak, the sheer volume of the material involved in this was extraordinary, but you did have to have the figure to do it in the first instance. And you spoke a little bit about television earlier on in this interview. How did the rise of TV make changes in society? Our TV is the shared culture by this stage. The vast, vast majority of people in all social classes see television as being their primary form of recreation. So it has a huge influence. And because, as I said, there are so few TV channels, Everybody is watching the same stuff. And that does produce a unity. There is a national culture in a way that we do not have anymore because the multiplicity of outlets and the fact that television is only one dimension of our entertainment repertoire 
that's no longer the case. But it was the point that everybody was watching the same shows. Everybody was participating the same stuff. And within that, I think it influences how people see the world. Very rarely is it in explicit political terms because most of the TV that is consumed is not factual. It is entertainment-based, it is drama, and it is comedy and music. And these things do not directly address party political issues. But the attitudes within them, I think, are very powerful. You see in in the sitcoms of the time, you see a, a great many discontented individuals who feel that things are going wrong. I mean, people like Rigsby and Rising Dam, Basil Fawlty and Fawlty Towers, these kind of characters who rail against the state of the nation. And that must have a long-term impact, I think. And most of those characters, had they been real, would have ended up voting for Margaret Thatcher in 1979 as the agent of change, because the depiction of Britain on popular television was of a country that seemed to be grinding to a halt, and therefore something needed to be done. And finally, Alwyn, in light of all we've discussed here, the politics, the change, the shifts, can you see any similarities between the 1970s and now? Well, I mean, there are certain common themes, I guess. I mean, we have recently experienced serious inflation for the first time in several decades, nowhere near the level of the 1970s, but still, it's something that has changed us as a country because there's been a fall in the standard of living, and that's something that we were used to in the 1970s. We've had fuel crises, again, very similar to where we were in the 90s, except then it was mostly to do with oil and with coal. And there was a feeling then, as I think there is now, that politics and the political system and the politicians who inhabit that system are simply not really up to the job, that they are not capable of managing the crises that we face. And I think that's still common. But, no, I mean, generally, it just felt so very, very different at the time. And I think some of it is to do with that idea of a shared culture, that we are all experiencing the same thing. And the great technological revolution was going to happen in the 1990s with the advent of home computers, where they become standard in people's homes. And then subsequently, in the beginning of this century, in the rise of social media. And the result of that is is that we are much more atomized and much more separated from other people. Even within our own households, you have your own computer, your own devices that are not shared with other people. And that sense of communality, of communal living within a family, I think has declined so much that the 1970s just feels like a different era. It feels like a different country. That was Alwyn Turner, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Chichester. You can listen to him discuss other 20th century decades at historyextra.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer. 